As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Big Football Show, a podcast by The Athletic about Big Ten football. Today is Wednesday, September 29th, and this is Scott Docterman, and I primarily write about Iowa. Today, I'm joined by special guest Joshua Perry, a former national champion linebacker with Ohio State and currently a college football analyst with BTN. Today, we're going to talk to Joshua about his playing days with the Buckeyes, his pro career, and making the jump from the field to the analyst. Uh, position. Joshua, welcome to the Big Football Show. How are you this morning? I'm great this morning. Glad to be here. After working in the business now for about 25 years, doing covering pro football and college football, very few times have I watched a former player and said, wow, we need to hear more from this guy. But after a handful of times of watching you on BTN, and then of course, over the last couple of years, I thought, your voice is really important in collegiate sports, both in just analyzing the game and the big picture. So how did you get so involved in football from an analytical point of view? And, and what's kind of been your interest in the sport beyond just the X's and O's? Yeah, it's That's a really good question. Just from the analytical standpoint, uh, I knew my edge as a player was going to have to come from understanding the game at a deeper level. And I was a, a good athlete, but I was not the best athlete out there. And I played with some of those guys who were just some of the freak athletes. Um, and so, like, literally to, to get on the field at Ohio State, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be more athletic than some of the guys in my room. So I have to have a different type of edge. Um, so just from studying the game and watching different players and asking questions of coaches and veteran players, I just started to learn more about the game. And I think that's really benefited me just in the transition into what I do now. Um, just because I've I've seen football from a different perspective, I thought about football from a different perspective than just being a player. Um, the game of football overall, though, I think was really impactful on me as a person for a number of reasons is I think it's a great unifier where you have on the field 11 players at a time who have to be purpose driven toward the same thing. And these are players that have at times different agendas that they have to put aside. Um, they come from different backgrounds. So the connection points have to be genuine because not everybody has the same experiences. Um, and it, it exposed me to 
um, things I had not gotten to see. And I always joke around, like when I was a kid, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in the suburbs. It's like, just, you know, not, not a lot of struggles. So uh, my parents had to manufacture adversity for me growing up just so I wouldn't be a, a soft kid who didn't have any type of worldview. And football was a way to manufacture that adversity. And then as I became a player at a higher level, we started to experience legitimate adversity and you had to prepare through that. And that's something that brings people closer together as well. So for me, just the game of football is intriguing. I just I think it's a, a, an awesome chess match, but also the the way that people connect and, and how it brings people together. And it's something that folks talk about even as fans in society where they're able to put aside their differences for three and a half hours on a Saturday or a Sunday when they're watching games. I think it's just a, it's really unique. You know, over the years, I've seen the way uh, student athletes have been treated differently um, and their empowerment has grown. I would say certainly even over the course of when you played and started playing 10 years ago, close to it. And then of course, going back 20, 25, 30 years ago, it's, it's been just completely different. Uh, they seem to have more of a voice now and they seem to ha have maybe a seat at the table where they didn't before. Um, is, do you regard this as important uh, for the growth of them as people, first of all, because I think people forget about them. They almost sometimes look at them as commodities and, and second of all, just to, uh, you know, for their growth as human beings, because I think in the future, you know, in, when they're 25 years old, 95% of them aren't going to be playing football. They're going to be in different kinds of walks of life. Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And it's interesting. Football is like so behind the eight ball sometimes just compared to other sports. And, um, you know, it's because of the culture where you have to fall in line. A lot of times, like there's not an outspoken person or voice in football necessarily because there are no stars outside of the quarterbacks, really. Right. And so everybody's just kind of falling in line. Whereas you look at some of the other sports where it might be an individual sport. So they have the platform to do that, or it might be a sport like basketball where there are superstars that are bigger than the sport at times where they can really push the narrative on certain things. Football hasn't been like that, but there has been this empowerment. And I think it is really important, especially at the collegiate level. And when you look at society as a whole, a lot of people go to college and that's where they really find their voice. And that's where they get involved in different things in the community and get involved in activism and, and things like that. And I, I think it should be no different for athletes. And I think it is, um, it's highlighted by the platform that exists. And now, even with things like NIL, where, you know, student athletes are going to be more recognizable, it is, it's important. And like I said, I think football players always have a little bit of a different perspective than other athletes because of what it takes to be successful on a team. Um, I'm a big fan of it. I was, uh, a player who, um, you know, I, I'd get on my Twitter account every once in a while when I was in college and I would I would kind of make the case for certain things I believed. And I think it's really important. But now you're starting to see those voices being taken more seriously here in the Big Ten. Kevin Warren, I think, has done a good job of reaching out to the student athletes and boosting up some of their platforms. And even now, um, like the pandemic year was a great example where you saw some players that were really able to push the envelope. And um, I think it is it's really good to see. Now, the most difficult part, and as these platforms expand, I'll be curious to see how this plays out, is advocacy in football is extremely difficult because you have, like I said, you have so much diversity. It's hard for one person to be a voice for everybody because everybody's needs are so different. But um, I like the direction of where things are going. It is interesting because uh, football is 
the most militaristic of the sports. It's always, yes. you know, pretty clear line, you know, coach says this assistant coach falls in line, players fall in line, no deviation. Basketball is completely different that way. Yep. It's, um, <laughs> you know, so it, it's really kind of a, an, an interesting dynamic, but I think last year, as you mentioned, I think the confluence of the, the pandemic along with uh, what happened in Minneapolis to what happened with uh, the Big Ten shutting down football and allowing Justin Fields to use his voice, the parents to use their voices, sure. and everybody to really uh, kind of rise above that. And their, each of their individual voices mattered, seemed to me, allowed them all collectively to understand that, you know, we matter, we count. And then you, you throw on NIL on this. And no school is going to want to hold people back because it's going to kill them in recruiting, if nothing else. <laughs> so I really like this, the way things are going now that the players feel more empowered to speak up about anything. You know, frankly, I've seen a more loose environment around athletes as a whole and, and, you know, football players, because basketball players have always been that way. They've always, um, sometimes you're kind of like, man, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta right. chill out a little bit here, but, uh, uh but football players, uh, it's, it's been fun to kind of see this. So, um, I wanted to take, go back a little bit to when you played at Ohio state and uh, you're right there at the, at the, the beginning stages of urban Meyer taking, you know, the program over expanding the, it was Ohio state was always a good program. Certainly under Jim Tressel, one national championship, one, what, seven, eight, nine straight big 10 titles or thereabouts. And then, um, but then to go and, and do it on a national level, was really impressive to me. And uh, what did you see and how did you experience kind of the growth of Ohio State as a program to be able to challenge and beat Alabama and, and win a national title? Now, it's really, really interesting uh, being a part of that process. And I was an early enrollee in Urban's first recruiting class. So I was 17 years old uh, in January of 2012 on campus in Columbus and uh, Urban made it very clear what his standards were going to be. And he was uncompromising about it. And, uh, it, you know, it, it meant going out at 5 a.m. outdoors in January in Columbus and doing workouts to try to really uh, see who wanted to be a Buckeye and see who wanted to be a part of the team. And, um, you know, just turning everything upside down. And it's not to say that the old way of doing things at Ohio State wasn't good. It was to say that Urban had a way that he wanted to do it and it was going to be done um, that way, or you just weren't going to be a part of it, which was really unique. And I think just that culture building from the inside out was really important because he had to find a way to get everybody on the same page quick, fast, and in a hurry. And he got the results to pay off in 2012 with an undefeated season. Mm -hmm. On the recruiting trail, it was really unique watching his philosophy play out with kind of the old conventions of how the Big Ten used to recruit. Because there was that kind of gentleman's agreement that when a player made a commitment to a Big Ten school, the other Big Ten schools were going to stop recruiting him. And Urban Meyer comes in and he wants Kyle Dotson, who's the Cleveland guy who's committed to Wisconsin. So he flips him and he wants uh, Savon Pittman, who I believe was an Ohio guy as well, who was committed to um, I think he might have been committed to Michigan State at the time. And he flips him. And, you know, it's just it's the things like that where. Now he's he's really pissing off other Big Ten coaches because he's doing things differently. But Urban's mentality was the way that the Big Ten has decided they want to do recruiting is not going to win a national title. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do this in order to win a national title. And now we see how some Big Ten schools are recruiting. 
Um, when you look at obviously Ohio State and what they've done, but the likes of Penn State and Michigan, um, these are schools that are finding ways to try to get top guys, and it doesn't matter what the allegiances are. They're they're gonna make sure that they can get those players in. So I think Urban had a, a really strong impact on the Big Ten conference as a whole in the way that recruiting was going to be done, which is really unique. And then it was this mentality of um, we're going to change the narrative as well, where we, you know, I, I was playing against Iowa, which was their offense looks a lot like, looked a lot like what it looks like right now, where <laughs> they, you know, they keep a fullback on the roster and the same thing with Wisconsin. And, um, you know, the, the same thing with some of the other schools in the conference, whereas it's a real pro style, it's not necessarily explosive um, athletes, but they're going to they're gonna be really good at the ground and pound thing. They're going to hit you with some play action pass. They've got a, a quarterback who's not going to turn the ball over and teams are going to time of possession you with a good defense to complement that. And Urban was like, man, screw that. We need, we need explosive high-flying offenses with really electric players. And it's not to say that he was the first guy to do spread offense in the Big Ten. But he was the first guy to do it with 40-plus points a game and a, a decent defense. And so now you've, got, um, now you've got an offense that can go down, they can score in a minute and 45 seconds, and then a defense that can get you the ball back on the next possession in five plays. Um, that was dangerous. And that changed the narrative about what Big Ten football was, in my opinion. And so you started that off with Ohio State, but then Michigan State was right there coming along right next to him. And then right after that, it was Penn State and Iowa that were really coming right along right next to them. Um, and we've seen Wisconsin now and what they are on the national stage. And it's not to say Wisconsin was um, a bad program, but it's, it, it's a program that I think benefited from the paradigm shift of the conversation around the Big Ten and the top teams there. And so it's, it's now it's really unique because everybody talks about the SEC, but I think it is apparent who that conference is that can compete with the SEC and that takes up the the next part of that conversation with the SEC. And that is the big 10 conference. And I think urban kind of modernizing recruiting and, and, and what the product is on the field in certain ways has a big impact on it. And like I said, it's not the fact that he did all of these things on his own, but I, I can definitely say that he had an impact on the way that the big 10 is perceived. Without a doubt. And I mean, I, I, I looked at the league before he got there as kind of a, I called it like crossed legs and coffee league, you know, where the coaches all kind of sit and, you know, drink and, and then they're very cordial. And then he just, as you said, flipped the dynamic where everybody was uh, out to, 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 it didn't matter. You were all competitors in, in recruiting as much as, as anything. And then, yeah, James Franklin coming in, bringing in a different energy at Penn state because it was, you know, under, under Trestle and Paterno and, you know, whether it was Kirk Ferentz and, and Bielema slash Alvarez and, and right. Antonio, everybody kind of had the same styles, which was a lot of times four, three defense, big physical box linebackers, um, run the football, be physical. And it still works. Obviously we've seen it work, but not at the elite level, you know, and certainly urban changed all of that. And, and I think if there was one game that that kind of highlights the difference, as you said, and it's still kind of shocking, the final score to me was 59 to nothing um, yes. against, against Wisconsin. And uh, because Wisconsin was favored going into that game, Wisconsin yes. had Melvin Gordon, a terrific running back. But yes. then I know for me, from an uh, observer point of view, I saw, wow, the elite athletic ability on one side versus a good team on the other. But when that elite elite athletic ability just clicks, 
the way that, that you guys did in, in that 2014 Big Ten title game was just otherworldly. And then I'm like, OK, we're in a new era now. It's it's completely yeah. different. And and that's the conversation um, that people are going around and around on this year um, with the team that you cover mm-hmm. in Iowa is that, in my opinion, is an elite defense. And, and I feel like I'm qualified to make that assertion. Um, those guys are really good. They play fundamentally sound. They take the football away. They score points on defense. But you look at that offense and you say, maybe this is a team that can win a Big Ten title. This is not a team that you feel like can compete in the college football playoff if the offense is going to continue to look the way that it does. And I think that I don't know if that's necessarily true, as good as their defense actually is. But the way that we have now shifted in college football is you'll take the the electric offense that can score a ton of points with the average to maybe even below average defense rather than the team that is going to be stellar defensively and the offense is just going to do enough to put a few points up on the board. You feel like you got to consistently be in that 35 to 42 point range offensively to really be a national contender, which is wild. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. I, I think when, when just my observation with Iowa trying to be as objective as possible is at some point they're going to get into maybe not a, a direct shootout, but a game where they're going to have to score a couple of touchdowns, even if they're trailing or it's uh you know, it's 24, 21 going into the fourth quarter one way or the other, and they're going to have to keep scoring. And I'm not sure they can, however, defensively, sure. They can, they can force fumbles. They can stop third and ones. They can do all of that but I think it's going to be fascinating to see. And, and I do think that the the landscape, and I did want to get you on a little bit on the college football playoff, both going from the BCS era to the, to the CFP to now a probable expansion is for a team like Iowa, probably Wisconsin, it probably hurts to go from the BCS to the CFP because now you've got to beat two elite teams rather than scheme for one for a month and uh, you know, come up with a great plan to slow down, uh, Trevor Lawrence or, or whoever in Alabama and, uh, and then play a really close game. But now you got to play Alabama and Clemson, which kind of leads to the elite athletic ability of Ohio State. So uh, is, is it more difficult now for a team like a, an Iowa-Wisconsin ground acquisition teams to, to compete at that level? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think it is. It's difficult because you're even with the time off between games, you're going to be gassed, which I think is always tough when, especially when, you know, your guys aren't maybe used to being in a track meet and they got to kind of do that thing. It's, it's tough. And then you'd mentioned the scheme aspect. And I think a lot of these offenses that are more pro style offenses, and I've talked to Christian Hackenberg about this um, because he's got really unique perspective as a quarterback who's played in multiple systems, but he always talks about how, um, the it's very scheme dependent when you want to go for that big shot and there's only a handful of those plays that you have a game, but you know, you're, you're counting on a certain defensive look and then you need your guys to execute it a certain way. And then you got to hit it in order to get that explosive play. Whereas in these spread offenses, they're, they're dependent upon putting a player in conflict. And so what you end up doing is you have a quarterback who they can get the explosive play because they're throwing the football out to a spot because they know it's going to be vacated because the player was in conflict and then their wide receiver can just make a guy miss. And all of a sudden it's an explosive. And in theory, you could have 10 to 12 of those a game that could pop like that. 
Um, whereas in, in the pro style game, you you have literally on your play sheet, there's like four opportunities mm-hmm. to really get that big explosive in there. There are detailed scheme plays that have to happen in a certain part of the field against a certain defensive way. So it becomes difficult based off of that. My experience also is for a player, there's a, a certain paradigm shift that happens from the semifinal to the final that is really difficult because we were playing Alabama in the semifinal and they were, they were a, uh, they had a team that could run downhill, but they had some weapons on the outside. We knew that their quarterback position was very average, but they had guys who could go. And so we had to figure out a way that we could cover a guy like Amari Cooper, but we could also make sure we had enough bodies that we could gang tackle a guy like Derrick Henry. And that was really, really, um, difficult for us just to make sure that everybody was assignment sound because if, if one person was off, it was going to pop for a big play. Then we get to Oregon and their offense was more of the spread RPO type deal. And, and we're used to playing those. And we had answers for how we wanted to dictate what the, the play selection was going to be for the offense. And that's what you can get into with an RPO is they talk about putting players in conflict on defense. We just decided, you know, we're not going to give up X, Y, or Z. We're going to make them do this, that, and the third, and then we'll figure it out from there. Anyway, so we knew what we wanted to do just from that standpoint. They wanted to run a play every 16 seconds, though, and that was the difficulty for us was that we had to play the same defense every snap. Um, If we had a little bit of time, we could look over to the sideline and get into something that was an adjustment, but we had to be ready to go. We had to make sure that we were um, you know, lined up. Our rotations had to be on point because there wasn't a lot of time to get guys in and out. And we had to win on first downs because what happens over the course of a game when you're playing a tempo team like that is if you're not in a second in six or less scenario as a a tempo team, you might not want to go fast because you don't want to go three and out really quick on a drive. Um, So if we won on, on first down where we kept them the second and eight or beyond, we felt like that was a win for us. But that comes down to going out and executing too. And so it went from, you know, how are we not going to get beat by these elite athletes in a big physical run game to now, like, how are we not going to get beat by the tempo of the game in an offense that's variable? It was really difficult just to, to flip your mind in 10 days to get that done. Um, and so I, I think just to your point, for the certain style that some of the, the older school teams would run, I think it's hard to get those shots and to get those explosives and the scheme to really create those big plays. But for every team, I think it is difficult having to shift from in in a big game that you can't drop from probably one style of play to something completely different. Yeah. It's it's an interesting dynamic. And then of course, going forward, if there's going to be more of those games and on home sites uh, that I think that's really going to be, fascinating to watch to see how how teams prepare and 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 how they adjust and and especially you know when you can have weather as a part of that element too yeah. that's going to be that's going to be really fascinating looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner StubHub 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. When you look at your alma mater right now, um, in some ways, at least for me, kind of being on the outside, I see it almost in a similar light to what you guys experienced in 2014, which was you lost that early game to Virginia Tech. Um, it kind of looked like the Big Ten was dead in the playoff era. And then you gradually <laughs> got better. Uh, you got, and then, of course, it led up to what happened in, in, in the um, Big Ten championship game. And then everybody was on edge wondering, wondering if it was going to be you, TCU, or Baylor that gets that final playoff spot and you finally got in. Um, are there any similarities or any is there a pattern that this team can follow that it was similar to what you experienced uh, seven years ago? Yeah, it's a – that's a wonderful question. So, I mean, there's kind of just the, the story in and of itself. You know, you go on the road for the first game with a young quarterback and you you win a game that was ugly at times. And then you come home and you get beat in your home opener and it's unexpected. And then you got to build from there. Like those things are well documented, um, you know, in, in especially since we've kind of seen it happen before. It makes you feel like. Ohio State is not out or a team in that situation would not be out of the playoff hunt. Um, I think the the big differences though, between 2014 and right now is the defense that we had at Ohio State in 2013, I think, is more of what the defense looks like now at Ohio State. The 2013 defense had some real issues. We gave up far too many points. Uh, guys were out of position. It was just really confusing. And those, you know, all those negative things were going on. I think that's what you see right now. And um, I think it's going to be really difficult for Ohio State, just speaking candidly, to get all of the defensive questions situated when you have to, you know, make a call on um, on who's calling plays after game two of the year. I, I think that puts you in a really difficult spot in order to become a strong unit, um, just being frank about it. But here is where I would never count Ohio State out and why they're going to have a chance and why they're going to be perceived nationally as a team that's kind of on the outside of the top 10 right now but has a chance. That offense is really good. And I know people have been critical of C.J. Stroud at times. I don't know if they expected – um, Dwayne Haskins or Justin Fields in game one, two, three, and four out of a redshirt freshman's career, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he's had some moments where you can tell he's going to be a really good player. And he's thrown the football to the likes of Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigba and Emeka Buka and some of those guys who are really good players catching the ball. And then you look at that running back room, and Master Teague was a known commodity. He's a solid running back. Then you had Mayan Williams who came on toward the end of last year. Travion Henderson um, is an All-American type player as a freshman, a true freshman right now. Um, Too many weapons. And we talked about teams that have to be able to score 35-plus points. I think Ohio State is going to give you a taste of that in just about every game they get into. So I don't know how many similarities between 14 and this year. Um, I think there's – we had drama in 14, but I think the drama is kind of manifesting in a different way this year. Um, but these guys have every opportunity because of how explosive the offense can be. 
that's going to be interesting to see how it handles uh, what seems to be a resurgent East Division. Um, you know, yeah. Michigan last year, frankly, I, I thought they quit at the end of the year, and I don't say that lightly. I, I, I think that from what I've saw and, and from when it played out, that it was not if. if Let's say that that Michigan goes ahead and was able to play Ohio State and then Iowa on the road. I think they lose those games by a combined hundred points, and maybe I mean, Harbaugh's. I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, and I think Harbaugh's probably out. Um, so in some ways, um, it enabled him to kind of recalibrate, uh, you know, readjust his contract, but come back and and now they look like at least a competent bowl caliber team. And we're, I have questions whether they can be good or just average, but, but still they look better than they did last year. Uh, Michigan state survived last week, but wow, you know, going to Miami and winning by three scores is a big deal to me. And yeah, and Michigan state's a tough team too. Like, you know, they, they definitely, I don't know if that was the best performance they had last week, but I mean, I always felt like this year they would be in games just because of how gritty they are. And they really embodied the personality of their head coach. Yeah. It was really impressive uh, to see. I saw them last year live and granted last year was such a mulligan year for everybody, but in particular a team with a new coach that didn't have spring practice or fall camp right. and trying to come on come to Kinnick stadium against an angry Iowa team. They lost 49 to seven. That happens once in a while, but to see the way they rebounded, they beat Northwestern. They, you know, they last week, they found a way, you know, they didn't look very good for most of the second half, except for a punt return, but they found a way. And then, and then you look at Penn state last year, they lose their first five and then now right. they're on an eight game winning streak and, and Maryland's undefeated with great athletes and, and Rutgers has shown that it's really taken that step up and, and be a competent football team. And, and even Indiana, you know, uh, which I, I think is still a team capable of winning six, seven games this year. So it's uh, that, that's going to be what's interesting is there's I think there's a component in the East where anybody can beat anybody on a, on a given day. But I still look at Ohio State as kind of the gold standard that, that nobody wants to get into a track meet with Ohio State because they will beat you in that in that game. Yeah, I mean, the, the parody is there for sure. And um, I, I personally, I like it because being a media type, it, it gives us a ton to talk about and a lot of speculating to do. But. I think also just for the sake of college football, there are so many brands in the East. So like when Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan and Michigan State are all good, that's good for college football. I think everybody enjoys that. Um, I, I agree with your point, though, where if I'm doing a power ranking right now, Ohio State is probably in that third or fourth slot in the Big Ten overall. Mm. But if if – I'm making betting lines for games. Ohio State's probably favored in a neutral site game against every team because there is that mentality that they could just explode offensively and you don't think anybody else can keep up with it. And that's a very intriguing thing about what's going on right now in the Big Ten. And that's, uh, you know, the, the point that I, I've been thinking all year, especially regarding Iowa's offense is, can they get into, if they get to Indy and they're undefeated and they're playing Ohio State? Can they win that game? And defensively, yes. Special teams, yes. Offensively, I don't know. And I, right now, I'd say no. Uh, but and that and that's where the one play can get you beat. And uh, I, I saw it when I covered the NFL a long, long time ago with Marty Schottenheimer, who was a tremendous coach, but he played so close that in those playoff games would think one play got him beat so many times and. Yep. In my eyes, he was a Hall of Fame coach, but he's not going to get there because of 
um, you know, a, a missed field goal or, you know, things like that. And I think that's where Iowa kind of sits that they have to play a perfect game against Ohio State or have an incredibly explosive game like they did four years ago, which was still inexplicable to me. But um, that's the only way they can really beat Ohio State and in Indianapolis. Yeah, it's um... – so I, I've been kind of trying to figure out exactly what that can look like for Iowa, though. Like, what, what can be the difference that gets them to look more explosive? And I did a breakdown on the Big Ten Network on, uh, on tailgate, and it was about Kent State loading the box on mm-hmm. Iowa. And so they're playing a, a single high safety coverage, whether it was man-to-man or three deep which allows you to, to get what we call football people call an eight-man box. Basically, mm-hmm. you have one more person than the offense can block. And it even works when they're not running those pro-style formations. Um, you still have one extra person in the box. And Kent State wasn't a, um, a base single high team. There are, there are multiple defense, but against Iowa, that's what they thought was going to give them the best shot because they felt like there's not an athletic quarterback and there's not necessarily that weapon that really threatens the ball going over their head. They could play it like that. And I haven't watched a ton of the Colorado State tape, but um, Iowa had trouble moving the football against them. And so it would lead me to believe that they did some things to, to try to make sure that they could get the box count correct, Colorado State. And so what Iowa did was they had some, some uh, jet sweeps that we saw, and they had a couple of plays that shot down the field. And, um, you know, they, they, they looked a little bit more creative in the passing game, found ways to get the balls out the tight ends, Laporta. Um, had a pretty nice game there. And I was like, man, that's really good. But then you look at the stat sheet and it's like, okay, Petrus went for 224. And so I start looking up the base stats for the year, go scroll down to Colorado State. They're like 90 at the pass defense in the country. And I'm like, oh, man. And they're, they average giving up like 250 a game. I'm like, man, so Iowa's best passing game so far is to like a bad pass defense that, um, and they, they, they were able to hold Iowa under what their season average is in yards given up in the past game. But when you flip it over to their prospects against a team like Ohio State, Ohio State's worse than Colorado State in pass defense. You know, <laughs> so it's like they're still going to have an opportunity. And that's the thing that is showed like it's I, I feel like if that game actually gets to play out, it's the perfect game because you have a lackluster offense against a defense that I don't think is worth a damn versus a really, really good defense and an offense that can put up points. Like, I mean, it's a really good matchup from that standpoint. I think it would be a great one, too, since they don't play during the season. I mean, they never play, actually. I mean, I think they've they've played like four times in 15 years. I mean, through all the legends and leaders and East and West. And, okay. So we had the, the crossover in 2013. Yeah. Iowa came to the shoe, but that was the only time I got to play. I never got to play over at Kinnick. And uh, and what was interesting, I remember about that game was Iowa thought we're going to go thirteen personnel and yes. just pound and and they had good tight ends. I mean, Kittle was the third tight end then, and he got a little bit better than they did that year eventually. Yeah. But well, <laughs> you know. I had some bookend tackles too. It was just I remember. Because I played a lot in that game because uh, that was a base defense game for us, obviously, with 13 personnel. Yeah. I was playing Sam linebacker at the time. Man, and I'm, I'm, looking at, um, I'm looking at those guys across the line of scrimmage, 
And you mentioned the tight ends. I'm like, big athlete, big athletes right there. I started looking at that old line. I'm like, damn, I'm like, they got some some <laughs> giants out here. I mean, the tackles were humongous. And I thought we had good looking players on our offensive line. That was a really, really good unit. And and it was all the zone blocking. Those guys were moving in lockstep. And it's just it's difficult to defend at times. Like, and I think that's kind of the culture of that program, too. I, I say that all the time. Like, you look at the tight ends that come out of there, I'm like, really good players. You look at you look at the track record of, of offensive linemen as well. I'm like, hot damn, like there are some really good players. That was probably the best game I've ever saw Brandon Sheriff play. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, your former teammate, a tremendous player, uh, you know, Ryan Shazier did not have a good game against him. Nope. I mean, because, but then again, if you're, if you, if you have no separation on Brandon Sheriff, it's a bad day. I mean, it's right. Just, <laughs> I saw that quite a bit that day and a lot of other days too, but anybody in the West, I mean, I, I the last weekend was a disaster of a weekend for the West with what happened yeah. with Wisconsin in that fourth quarter, Minnesota. Yeah. I, it was, I, that, I don't get shocked very often. That one yeah. was a shocker, Nebraska, another just, you know, face palm of a, of a fourth quarter game. Um, anybody in the West that you think has a chance here to, to, to get Iowa and, and, and pass Iowa? I mean, maybe one of them can beat Iowa, but as far as winning the game and then winning the division? It's Iowa's division. Um, and that's, I mean, the, the weird thing about Wisconsin, though, is, is they're still totally alive in the West because they haven't had a, a West matchup yet. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they lost to Penn State in a close one. And people think Penn State is a, a very good football team. And then um, they got their behinds beaten by Notre Dame. But right. the scoreboard looks a lot worse than the game actually did. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly convinced that Notre Dame is a very good team personally. Um, I think they've got some legitimate issues. And Wisconsin, I think, is a very good defense. Their offense is a real problem, though. And I'm surprised that Graham Mertz has looked the way that he has. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's all his fault. I think a lot of times he's thrown into very skinny passing windows. And part of that is uh, his wide receivers and, you know, tight ends are good, but the wide receivers aren't big separation guys. And, and with the pro style offense, you can't necessarily create some of those windows in, in the way that you can by just vacating space in a spread offense. And so I, I think that's a, a, it's combo platter for him. Um, but, the, the wild thing about it is they, like I said, played close against Penn State. People think it's good. That Notre Dame game was really close until they had to start throwing the ball. And then Graham Mertz turns it over a handful of times, and that's a, a tough way to lose a game there. Um, but right now, if you look at betting lines, um, they're favored over Michigan. That game's mm-hmm. being played at Camp Randall, and Michigan is a top 15 team. And Wisconsin is not great right now. And so – People feel like they're not dead in the water. And like I said, if, if they can, you know, if they can get the, the victories in the West, then they've got a shot out there. Um, Minnesota is very challenging for me because I think their defense is a lot better than they were a year ago. I am shocked that Tanner Morgan has looked the way that he has throwing the football. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a twofold issue for him is when he was great in 2019 Um, he had a coordinator that really put him in position to make plays Mm -hmm. and he left. And I don't know if they've been able to get that same play calling rhythm and selection that he had in 19. The other thing is he's great in the RPO passing game. When they have to go drop back, um, 
he, he has a couple of misses, which is on him. He was getting a hit. Like, he was on his back. And um, Bowling Green came up with some blitzes that just – they confused guys, and, and, and they were able to get to the quarterback. You're never going to be great throwing the ball when you got pressure. Um, but to answer your question – I, I don't I don't think anybody is doing anything in the West right now. It's uh, it's it's I thought this was going to be a lot more competitive than it's looking right now. Honestly, like I walked away from the preseason camp tour saying that I thought Minnesota was going to be a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that Wisconsin was going to have a chance to make some plays. And we felt like Iowa was going to be extremely competitive this year. And the only one that's been true is the fact that I was extremely competitive this year. Yeah. It, it, it surprised me too. I, I kind of went on in depth with Minnesota earlier this summer. And, uh, you know, the, one of the big differences between their 11 and two's team and now is they had two NFL receivers and an NFL yeah. running back who got hurt and they looked really good and against Ohio state offensively, I thought, and they have a veteran offensive line. So that really surprised me that they played as poorly as they did last week. And then, um, uh, you know, and, and Nebraska is a team that I, I, just I'm kind of backed off on because everybody kind of expected Scott Frost to come in and revive the program. And I think they're playing better than they have, yeah. but they're still losing. So yeah. at some point they've got to cross that bridge and I never want to rule out Northwestern. Uh, that's they always seem to find a way to win some of the games, but yeah, they don't, they don't look great right now. They got some, some real issues. Um, the quarterback position, which they've been able to manage in years past, but their defense has not looked the way that it typically does. And um, they obviously lost a, uh, a legendary coordinator. So I, I think that's part of that transition process. But yeah, I mean, it's it, the, the West is really unique. Um, and you touched on Nebraska. I, I never believed that Scott Frost was going to turn it around the way that people thought he would. Mm-hmm. I thought they would become a better program for sure. I never thought it was going to be um, a win the West type of program. But right now, I think he, he's he got that thing in a, a decent spot, except for the kicking game. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the literal only reason right now that they haven't won games is because of the kicking game. There, there have been special teams blunders in every one of their games that you could point to and say, if they get this play, they, they might only have one loss this year if they could play well in special teams. Right. So, I mean, it's the, the, the thing is not in bad shape. They just got to find ways to not hurt themselves. I think, you know, over the course of Nebraska's 10 years or so now in the big 10, there were two elements to me that have kind of kept them back from being at least a challenger for the division in most years. And one is, the 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 inability to, to line up and play a line of scrimmage football in the West. Yeah. That, that's a defining characteristic of Wisconsin, Iowa, Northwestern, Minnesota does it too, which is you've got to be at least as tough as those teams. It doesn't matter if you're three, four, four, three spread, whatever, you've got to be physical that way. And the other thing is that they haven't been able to do is this is a developmental division. And you see yes. Iowa and Wisconsin they get three stars and occasional couple of four stars and that's it. So they learn how to turn three stars into pros and Nebraska's four stars transfer. And so, you know, their attrition and their inability for development has really been what's cost them. Now, if if he can keep everybody there, they've recruited a higher level than everybody else, but if they can keep everybody and then shore up those mistake areas, because you look at Iowa, for instance, LeVar Woods is as good as there is 
in the country when it comes to special teams. And, right. And then you play in great defense and often, and they don't beat themselves. And so if right. you do that, that's, and Nebraska always beats themselves. So it's, that's, once they get that figured out, if they get that figured out, then I think, sure, why not? Why can't they go out and beat anybody? So that, that's what's fascinating to me about them. Um, Christian Hackenberg and I uh, actually talked about this idea of high school development. Um, he was he was talking about the idea of projecting bodies mm-hmm. um, when he was at Penn State because of the sanctions they had uh, along the offensive line. They had to do a lot of projecting where they they were getting guys in who were 255, 265 pounds, and they had to project and say, okay, can we turn this guy into a, you know, 305-pound mauler up front um, that might take two years or three years to get him to that point? And can we develop his skill set? And we were talking about that because we were talking about uh, PJ. Mm-hmm. And his philosophy is high school recruiting and developing guys out of high school. And that's, that is a, a Big Ten West mentality. And um, you get these guys who, in the West, they change their bodies. And then they become really good technicians, too, because mm-hmm. they get all this time to play a bunch of reps in practice before they have to go out and play games. Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, these are programs where it's redshirt a guy, and then maybe you're not playing your redshirt freshman year and all these different things. And it takes two or three years to get on the field and become a product. Um, whereas it is different when you have four and five stars because those cats expect to play their true freshman year or their redshirt freshman year. And they, they, the thought process with their bodies is that they're more ready-made bodies. Mm-hmm. And that is where some of the attrition comes from is when you have a four-star guy and you're telling him you're not getting on the field for two years. He's like, well, dude, screw that because I can go somewhere else and I can play tomorrow. Right. The mentality of a three star is totally different. That's why you can develop them. And that's why they do start to become technicians because they understand, all right, I'm physically limited. Like I can't go out there and just be balling like some other dudes. Like I have mm-hmm. to learn how to play the game of football the right way. That's a really interesting thing that you bring up. And that's what's interesting about even practices for, I'll, I'll say Wisconsin and Iowa. And they're two completely different running teams. Uh, one's a zone, one's a gap. And, and, yep. and one relies on 295 pound guys. One relies on 335 pound guys. But just to, when those three stars get into practice and they see and whether they're, you know, they're not physically developed. And if they go and they try and they're on the scout team and they get popped every single play. I, I, I do it every year. I ask, Every single Iowa senior, what was your welcome to Iowa moment? And you just look at, well, five years ago, I went against Mike Daniels. And five years ago, I went against George Kittle. Or I went against, you know, AJ Epineza. You know, the guys like that. And they're like, that's what I was <laughs> – that was my welcome to Iowa moment. And I realized I got to get a lot better. I got to get a lot stronger. I got to be better with my technique because he just got his hands in on me and drove me every single play. And yeah. and uh, and you're right. You know, a lot of times when you're a top 100 guy and you go to a school and you expect to play right away, that you rely on your athletic ability, and then you have somebody who's 23 years old with great technique and physically developed, then it changes. It, it's, it's a very difficult matchup, uh, and then it gets frustrating very quickly. Yeah, it does. Man. I mean, it's something we always talked about in the league, but it's like, you know, how the guy I played with, how is Antonio Gates um, still getting open as an old man in the NFL? And we, we just called it vet moves. Like when you're a vet, you just you play the game differently. You understand technique, you understand leverage, you understand space. You know, you understand all of the things that give you the edge. You understand concepts and 
you know, when you're running a certain offensive concept, how different defenses are going to try to defend it. Um, and that's how he used to get open. And I'm like, hey, this is what I always talk about. People say, yeah, I hate when Ohio State fans do this because it really bothers me because I watch teams with with lesser talent players go out there and be successful. But they're like, we're not talented enough to do X, Y and Z. And I always go back to like, you know, how does the the Wisconsin and how does the Iowa do it with maybe a lesser player? But I go to the league, too. And I'm like, you know, how does a, a 30 plus year old player end up looking like he can run when he can't compared <laughs> to a guy who's 22 coming into the league? It's because they got really good technique players who are smart. And so I think all of all of the the athletic differences are mitigated when you have a smart team that's fundamentally sound. Now, where it gets dangerous is when you got a bunch of athletes who are smart and fundamentally sound. Yeah. I don't know how you compete with that, but there are ways to get around that and for teams to, to rise above the, the talent level that they possess. That's why uh, every one of us have been frustrated at, at basketball games at the YMCA because you've got this old guy out there that just dominates and you're like, what am I doing? I, I'm faster. I'm, I'm quicker. I can shoot better. But <laughs> So I played this cat named Hank. I, I was um, I, I was maybe like a senior in high school or a freshman in college. Uh, I was on vacation and I was at a, a, a rec center and I was playing against this old dude named Hank and not to be this guy who's old white dude. And, um, you know, we're, we're playing pickup ball. It's two on two. And I, I kid you not, this dude hit every shot. Like he had every angle (laughs) bank shots, like just nothing but net, whatever the case was, he, you know, he could like just handle the ball, not anything fancy, but just like he could handle the ball. And I'm like, man, how come we can't check this cat? He's an old dude who's seen a lot of basketball. He played a lot of basketball. He just, you know, he understood where we were going to be soft. And, mm-hmm. he, you know, he didn't try to do too much and just made sure that he wasn't going to give us the basketball. And I was like, all right. So, yeah, I mean, that's that is probably the best analogy. It's like it's the old cat hanging out at the rec center who's giving the young dudes buckets. <laughs> exactly. It's 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 frustrating, but it's also uh, illuminating as well. So. Well, I wanted, I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know you've got a busy day and certainly midweek and in a game week is, is tough for everybody, but uh, uh, I appreciate you spending some time here talking about Big Ten football and your, your past. And, and I, what I anticipate is a really bright future for you. I definitely appreciate it. And uh, if you ever want to have me back, I'm, I'm definitely glad to do it. But I love the Big Ten, uh, just as a conference, obviously the conference I played in, but I love the personality. I, I love what's going on here. I love um, how this conference has been on the cutting edge of, of certain issues as of late too, which is awesome. And it's just, it's fun to be able to cover it and, and to be able to get to know folks like you as well. All right. Well, thanks again. And as we wanted to thank you, our legends and listeners for spending some time with us and adding us to your podcasting rotation. So for Joshua Perry, this is Scott Docterman, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.